Good morning. How excited we are that you have decided to spend some time in Scripture with us. And as we travail through the pages of this text that is full of lessons that are as relevant for us today as they were so long ago, my hope is that your heart can be enriched, and that your spirit can be connected to the one, the one that has called you forth for a purpose and a mission. I want to start our conversation today with prayer. Thank you for listening to the yearnings of our heart. We pray that you place our thoughts, our actions, our ideas and our ideals in line with who you have called us to be. We thank you for community. We thank you for the breath of life. And as you breathe into us, both individually and communally, we pray you give us the courage to ever broaden our circles. For we pray in your name. Amen. So we continue our study in the book of Deuteronomy. And today we look very briefly at the crux of the relational call that God extends to his people. It's a call that is cemented in the ethos of the Israelite nation. Now, I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and the pericope or the passage that we're going to be looking at is 10 simple verses comprising verse 12 through verse 22. So what we're going to do today is we're simply going to read the text. I want you to close your eyes and allow the words to wash over you. Allow the call that God is making upon these Israelites to become the call that God is making for your life today. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12 reads, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God mighty and awesome who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens. For you yourselves were aliens in Egypt, 
Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you all those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your far forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the sky. I love this passage. I love this passage because it prompts us to think about God in three primary ways. First and foremost, I am so blessed to hear in Israel's liturgy how this dualism that has become part and parcel of Christianity dissipates. For us, too often, the decision is between orthodoxy or orthopraxy. I know that sounds like a mouthful, so let me simplify it. Most times, we are making these decisions about how we ought to act rightly or what we ought to believe. And beliefs and actions often are divorced from each other. We have this false dichotomy between faith as a feeling and faith as a series of doctrines that we subscribe to. We have then this dualism, this separation that exists between the mind and the heart. We believe that overly emotive expressions of faith tend to devolve into fanaticism and that overly rational discourses or statements of belief tend to be dispassionate and heartless. We run into these troubles because we have adopted a primarily Greek way of understanding religion. That's not the same way that the Semitic people understood faith. It's not the same way that the author of Deuteronomy speaks about faith. Listen to how visceral his description is of the relationship that you ought to have with God. He says that you fear the Lord and that you walk in all of his ways, that you love him, that you serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, it seems to me that if we've believed in this false dichotomy, this dualism, this separation and division between the mind and the heart, we would believe that Deuteronomy is calling us to an emotional expression of faith. But the reality is that for the authors of the Old Testament, this differentiation between the heart and the mind doesn't exist. It is actually in the soul, in the heart, in the very center of visceral reaction that decisions are done. Decisions, rationality, ideas, faith, and belief all happen in the same place. There is no separation. You are both rational beings and deeply emotive beings. And like no other faith tradition in the world, Judaism merges those. And so how are you supposed to act and to relate to God? Well, you're supposed to recognize that sometimes God is the God of doctrine. 
the rational God, the God that inspires systematic theologians and biblical scholars. But that's not all that God is. God is also the God of pathos, the emotive God, the one who stands in the breach for us, the one who sees you as you are watching us today, the one who looks down upon you and recognize that you are not the compilation of your mistakes, rather you are a vast fountain of untapped potential. God relates emotionally to you as well. And in giving God both your spirit and your thoughts, both your actions and your beliefs, both your reason and your emotion, you are able to connect in God with God in new ways. And what ends up happening when you start connecting with God in new ways is that your paradigm broadens. You know, too often we define, and we've talked about this before, life between those who are with us and those who are against us, those who are for us and those who are in opposition to us. Nowhere is that more evident than in the passages throughout the Torah that call us to dissipate and destroy all borders. Notice that these aren't just borders that have to do with religious beliefs or ideals. These borders have to do with your own ethnic background, your language, the place that you come home. These borders are caught, these borders that are calling us in, in the past to notice who we identify with and who is different are all destroyed in the light of the God who calls us to experience him in new ways. And why? Well, because for God, there is no division. There is no us and them. Now, the author of Deuteronomy is going to invite us to meditate upon the primeval history of the world. To the Lord God belong the heavens, even the highest heaven, and the earth and everything in it. So pause with me for a moment and try to understand what the author is saying. He is actually making a theological point. It is a point that has to do with providence and with God's ownership of creation. You see, if God owns not only the heavenly realms, but the earth and everything that is in it, then it means that the inhabitants of the earth, regardless of nation, creed, tongue, or tribe, also belong to Yahweh. And if everything belongs to Yahweh, then really that which unites us and connects us is far more important than anything that divides us. God has taken ownership and in God's ownership, differences dissipate. Now, Israel, even in the midst of this ownership of Yahweh, Israel holds a prominent place. The idea is that God has decided to use Israel as a palpable sign of the covenant. And so, God begins to describe through the passage that we just read, the specificity that Israel has. And it's powerful, isn't it? 
This idea that of all the nations, you are special. My covenant has become one with you. But the question becomes, what is this covenantal relationship that defines our status as remnant or special people? And for the author of Deuteronomy, the remnant and this call to be special people has to do with our orthopraxy, our actions. Read, read the call that Israel is being invited to participate in as they embody the Yahweh that is the Lord of Lords and that shows no partiality or accepts no bribes. Verse 18 says that he, speaking of Yahweh, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And so it seems that very early on, this remnant nature, this nature of special tribe and special nation has to do with their ability to incarnate Yahweh to those who are less fortunate. Covenant then can be measured. It can be measured not by the capacity that Israel has to repeat the Decalogue or any of the other writings in the Torah. Rather, you can tell that covenant is occurring if certain things are happening. Is the cause of the fatherless being defended? Are the widows being cared for? Are we showing love to the poor and compassion to the sojourner, to the alien, to the resident foreigner that has come into our land? Are we extending them the mercy and the protection that God would afford them? It's interesting how God is attempting to have society itself be the metric by which covenant is measured. There is no statement of faith, no doctrinal creed, no series of beliefs or covenants that ought to be signed. Rather, Yahweh is telling Israel, look at your society and you will see if covenant is being kept. Look at your society. What would Yahweh say? What would Yahweh say of a nation in which the gap between rich and poor has quadrupled over the past 20 years? What would Yahweh say of a nation that continues to cut assistance programs for orphans and widows? What would a nation, what would Yahweh say of a nation that erodes its safety nets? What would Yahweh do with a nation, with a nation that persecutes and dehumanizes immigrants? You all saw the pictures You saw the pictures of those refugees from Haiti escaping 
a country that has been plagued by political unrest, poverty, and violence. They were uncomfortable. Uncomfortable photographs to witness. But the discomfort washed away because instead of looking at people, we looked at political positions. No other, no other thing, no other practice has been more politicized in the past 10 years than immigration. And yet Yahweh says, I love the alien. I give him food and clothing, and you are to love those who are alien, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. It doesn't matter what party you belong to. It doesn't matter what belief you hold on border security. The words in scripture are clear. But then you might have believed in this narrative, America first. Let's make our country great again by dehumanizing and forgetting people who are escaping situations of violence. Let's make America great again by shutting its borders. Because these people that are coming in, well, they're thugs and criminals, the worst of the worst. We have nothing in common with them. They don't share our beliefs, our philosophy, our language, our doctrines, our ideals. So let's shut the border on them and send them back. Hmm. And you are to love those who are aliens. For Yahweh, Yahweh loves the alien. Do you know what the word for sojourner, for foreigner is in the Hebrew? It's gar. Do you know what the definite article in Hebrew is? It's ha. So every time Israel receives a commandment to protect and care for the alien, Israel is actually receiving a commandment to protect and care for Hagar. Deuteronomy 10 talks about the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He talks about how special Israel is how they have call, been called by God for a particular purpose. But right there, beside the name of Abraham, you have the name of Hagar. Hagar. Because for God, for the Yahweh that we serve, there are no borders. There is a place for Isaac. But there also is a call to leave a space at our table 
and our door wide open for Ishmael to walk in. It's not an easy thing. It's not politics. It's not orthodoxy. It's mercy. That's the kind of God we serve. Joey, the foreigners, the sojourners. Wow. Wow, Miguel, you, um, you challenged us this morning. You challenged us. And in, in the same way that Moses must have challenged them because the Israelites, they're about to enter this land where they are supposed to take it over and take it from people who are outside of their community, mm -hmm. right? And yet he gives this message almost, it almost seems to be contradictory um, of this taking of the land from other people and yet he is here saying to them, you're supposed to care for the foreigners, mm -hmm. for the outsiders, for the widows, and for the orphans, those on the, um, on the margins of society. So that's difficult. That's difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But I, I go back to what you said at the beginning about how um, we take more of a Greek approach to theology. Would you expand on that a little bit for us? What, what, what is that? What is this Greek approach to theology? How is that different from Judaism? Um, is there a discomfort that we have with contradictory ideas? Is, is, is that? Yeah, so the Greeks wanted to systematize everything, right? And so it was very rationally oriented. And actually, the Greeks believed that there was a marked difference between your heart and your mind. And because there was this different, this kind of paradox that you were being called to inhabit in, um, God couldn't be emotional. Mm. And so God was described in a lot of uh, Greek thought as this ap apathetic God, this God that possessed no emotion, um, which years later forces people like Thomas Aquinas to describe God as the unmoved mover. Mm. And while that philosophically and intellectually makes a lot of sense, at least in the paradigm that Aquinas is trying to construct, it did forget the comfort that Jews had with living in paradox mm. um, because they understood that life itself and life being called to live in the kingdom of Yahweh is a life that is lived in paradox. Mm. The first shall be the last. Wow. Um, if you want to gain your life, you must first lose it. <laughs> it seems like that's, that notion of paradox and contradiction and inhabiting the tension rather than trying to solve the tension mm. is something that Jesus was also very comfortable with. Mm. And that's because he comes from this rich tradition of leaning into the paradox mm. rather than trying to solve the paradox. And so I think that now when, when that translates into how we experience Christianity, we are very uncomfortable with the paradox. Mm. So we, we say to ourselves, yes, um, of course we are to, to have care and protection for the poor, but not too much care for the poor because our mind tells us mm. that you know they might be gaming the system mm -hmm. and they might be exploiting the system. And so we don't want to continue forging this codependent relationship with people that are less uh, fortunate than us. And so we're not comfortable with the paradox. And so we try to reason the paradox away. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, as you've noticed, with this contradiction, God is calling us to lean into these paradoxes. Yeah. 
And as you were talking, I was thinking about the other paradoxes of mercy and justice, mm-hmm. right? That mercy and justice come together in God. And it's, at times it doesn't make sense. How can you have mercy and do true justice? And yet that's the way that God mm-hmm. moves is, is, through, is through paradox. Do we have, where does that come from within us? Um, is it just our, you know, the Greek, the, Greek, Greek perspective that's just sort of been integrated in society? Um, in, in my mind, I kind of believe that God should be noble. I guess, I guess that's an assumption that I have I, I, that I didn't even think of until you were talking, that God should be noble and understandable. And if God is beyond my understanding, I'm really uncomfortable with that idea because then I have to say, I don't know. Somebody asked me, why did God th- do this? And I have to say, I don't understand why he did that. And that makes me super uncomfortable. I'd rather say, well, actually, this makes sense if you put it in this and this and this light. I expect God to be noble but and understandable. But is that different than scripture? Does scripture say that God is that God is unknowable? Is, are, are there aspects of him that are knowable? Yeah, I think I think you just hit it on on the head. Um there are aspects of God that have to be knowable. That's the whole point of incarnation, right? Is the desire of God to be known. Mm-hmm. So yes, absolutely. We began we began by knowing God, understanding and looking at God through the lens of Jesus. So mm-hmm. I think there are aspects of God that are knowable, but God is unknown mm-hmm. as well. And so we need to understand that, as Eberhard Jungel put it, God's being is in becoming. Mm. And so the question, in order to know who God is, the question that we need to ask is, what is God becoming? Mm. And for the Jews, as they are getting ready to enter Canaan, when the temptation is to dehumanize those who are different than us, and by the way, they will dehumanize those who are different from them. Mm. God is reminding them, I am the foreigner and the alien in Egypt because I saw and heard you when you were foreigners in Egypt. And so not only am I the foreigner, but you also are the foreigner. And so it's it's this desire to to believe in a God that becomes. Mm. And the question then is, what is God becoming? And how am I being intentional about seeing God become. Mm. Um, And I think today, uh, God is asking us to look at our society once again, and it is extremely uncomfortable. And it might be, it might be a call to live in a paradox, and it might be a call that forces us to say, hey, we don't have the answers to all of this, Mm -hmm. but we know that God is becoming that which lives on the margins. Wow. God is becoming. That's so powerful that God is moving us to a certain direction. Now, when you say that God is becoming, does that mean that God changes? Is it that our perception of who God is changes? Is it that God is shifting orientation of society? What do you mean by that God is becoming? Well, so it it can be all of the above, depending on what particular track you take on your interpretive lens. but what, what I choose to believe and what I think is most helpful to believe is that the movement towards incarnation is a movement where God becomes what I need him to become in order to understand grace better. 
So there is God, the, the being that, that exists behind the construct of God. And I know we're going to get a bit ethereal here, so bear with me, friends. There is God, the construct that exists beyond time and space and even language. That God is unknowable. There's no way. But God doesn't desire to be unknowable. So what does God become? Well, God becomes first and foremost time and space, right? Um, the world was formless and void, and then God speaks, and time and time and space are created. Mm -hmm. God then becomes language, and God spoke, and it was done. And so, God is always becoming that which we need uh, Him to be to be in order for us to comprehend Him better, to know Him better. And so, I guess the answer to the uh, immutability of God is, does God change? Well, if you're asking about the construct of God, the God that exists beyond being, then that God doesn't change. Mm. But if you're asking about the way that I relate and understand this God who desires desperately to be known, then absolutely that God changed. Right. That God changes. And here's the beauty, because most of our relationships, Joey, are I'm not going to change. Yeah. You need to change. You need to change to fit mm. my perceptions, my ideals of who you are. And God says, I'm going to flip that on its head. He starts by saying, who or what do you need me to be in order to understand mm. grace and compassion better? Wow. And I will become that. Wow. So our God is a God who adapts. Mm -hmm. He adapts so that he can reach us and have relationship with us. That is the... And actually, you see that throughout the history of Scripture, is that God constantly is adapting his approach. He's adapting how he um, relates to people. You know, he, he, he speaks directly to um, Abraham and to, to Moses, and then he brings in prophets to speak on his behalf. And then he comes in person as Jesus, which, which you know, is a hard thing for us to grasp. But, you know, even Ellen White talks about how Jesus will carry the marks of his humanity mm -hmm. through eternity. So in that way, God has been changed by changing mm -hmm. to be incarnate Absolutely. with us. Absolutely. That's and, a beautiful thought. And and that means, and that's the, I guess that's one of the paradoxes that, that we have to hold in our mind, that God is unchangeable, he's unknowable, but he is knowable and he is changeable. Mm -hmm. It is a paradox and yet that's the reality that we live in. It's something that we can't understand. And yet we see living out in, mm. in, in our faith and in our, in our interactions with God. Yeah. And here's, here's, I think, the ultimate paradox then. That that God, who is both unchangeable and adaptable, that God who is beyond knowledge and who desperately wants to be known, that God is dwelling inside of you. So the God that created the universe is dwelling inside of you. And I think within Adventism, we don't talk about this because, well, let's face it, we have a, a really, really controversial history with a guy named Kellogg who kind of ruined it for all of us. Um, but it's a, it's a very biblical concept that yeah. God is dwelling and inhabiting inside you and that this idea that a lot of other faith traditions within Christianity have of the Imago Dei, the image of God within each one of us, um, that says, hey, if you believe that God, this unknowable, unreachable, yet adaptable and knowable mm. paradox is dwelling inside you, then my 
work as a follower of this God is to try to recognize him inside the people I meet, mm. particularly inside the people that it's difficult to see this image of God in, yeah. the poor, the orphans, the widows, wow. the aliens, and any other marginalized group. Let's face it, it's really hard to restore their dignity, mm -hmm. their value, and to believe that they have a deep contribution to make to our society unless you switch this very Augustinian view of humanity as totally depraved with a different view, with a more biblical view of humanity that says, you carry within you the divine fingerprints of God. God is living within you. You possess, as the Society of Friends say, the, this inner light. And it is our job, I think, to find this imago Dei in each other. Um, because I think that's how we get to know God better. It's by relating and finding him in one another. Yeah. And like we talked about before, you're not talking about pantheism, right? You're talking about um, that we are all, as, as Paul writes, we're all temples of the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit. So we have God residing in us. That's what the temple was, right? right? And so we aren't, no longer is the temple reserved for a, a specific spot in, in Jerusalem. It is now traveling with mm. the people of God wherever they go. They expand the kingdom of God. Yeah, so, go. so the widows, the poor, the orphan, and the resident aliens, they're not God, mm. but they have God within them. Wow. And so I wonder if that would change mm -hmm. The dignity that we afford groups like that, if we started to say, hey, my Haitian brother or uh, this woman that is uh, leaving an abusive relationship and now has to care for her children and there's no safety net for her because in a lot of uh, states in our country, um, Domestic abuse is still very difficult to prove. Yeah. And so the safety net that we should construct for them isn't really there. I'm wondering what that would do to human mm. dignity if wow. we would say, you are carrying God within you. God is dwelling within you. And so you have value beyond your station in life. Wow. If we truly believed what Jesus said in that parable of the sheep and the goats, mm -hmm. that... Um, when you do it to the least of mm -hmm. these, my brethren, you do it to me. Mm -hmm. Man, would it change if if I saw a homeless man on the street and I suddenly realized he was a lost, lost, long lost uncle? Mm -hmm. Would that change the way that I treat that mm -hmm. treat that homeless man? Um, if I saw a prostitute and I realized that she was a family member. Would that change the way that I, I relate to them? I think it would. I think it would. And yet that's what Jesus is saying, right? That they are not some other person. Mm -hmm. They are me. They are part of your family. They are part of who, who is a part of your community. And yet we draw these artificial lines that separate us from, from them. Wow. Wow. And isn't, isn't that what... Isn't that what sin ultimately does? You know, we, we've gotten, again, very, for being Adventists, we're, we're extremely Augustinian in the way we perceive sin. Um, don't worry if you don't know who Augustine was. He's not that, that important. Um, but we, we end up saying that sin itself is behavioral. It's actions. And I think sin 
if you if you ask the Jews, if you ask the authors of Scripture, um, they would say sin is anything that darkens or dampens our capacity to see mm. God in each other. And so I think that's why Jesus reserves his, more sca- his most scathing criticism, not for the prostitute, but for the priests. Mm. Because when I see this homeless man falling over, um, saying there's one on, off a of waterman that at least is honest about what he needs the money for. He says, I just need money for beer. Um, so when you see him falling over, mm. you, it's very easy to ask the questions about his personal decisions. What led him to a life of addiction and a life of marginalization, a life that has been marred by poor decisions? And I'm not trying to alleviate personal responsibility. I think uh, personal responsibility is key to the process of healing, Mm. but What would happen if instead of seeing this man as the cumulative poor decisions and series of poor decisions that he has made, what would happen if I saw the divine fingerprints within Mm. him? Wow. How would I relate? How would that change? And then what would happen if I started to ask myself, what role have I played mm. in maintaining a certain sector of our society marginalized? Yeah. What structures and systems am I contributing to? And I think that's why for Deuteronomy, sin isn't just individual. Yes, there is personal responsibility. I want to be clear with that. But sin is also corporate Mm -hmm. because there has to be the environment for sin to flourish in. There has to be an environment that allows a woman, like you were mentioning, Mm -hmm. to believe that the only way forward is by selling herself and the only commodity that she has left, i.e. her body. There's got to be a reason for a man to believe that it's better to live on the streets than it is to go through the process of of restoring his humanity. Mm -hmm. So there's a system and a structure that that I think we're all participating in. And that's why Yahweh says to the Israelites, you wanna see if covenant is happening, I can tell you how to do it. Let's not look at the 10 commandments, important as those might be. Let's actually see how well these groups are faring in your society. And to be honest, if that same principle was being applied to us today, I wonder, I wonder what Yahweh would say. That's so powerful how you said that what God looks at, what he seems to look at, look at in Deuteronomy is not so much their orthodoxy, but their orthopraxy, not so much their beliefs, but their practice. Because to be honest, our practice re- reveals our true beliefs, mm-hmm. right? Um, beliefs and practices are not separate like we would think them to be, like you were pointing out. Beliefs, our practices are outflowings of our true beliefs, no matter what we say Mm -hmm. with our mouth. So if we say that we love our neighbors, but our actions show otherwise, that probably means that we don't love them, right? right? Just Just like if I said to my wife, I love you, but I did things that would hurt her over and over again, 
then I don't really love her no matter what my mouth is saying. Correct. Right? So that's why he looks at the outflowing of our beliefs in our practices. And you're saying, if you look at our society, what does our society reveal about our practices and ultimately then our beliefs? What does, what does Adventism mm -hmm. reveal as, a, as an organization, as a church, as an institution reveal about our, our beliefs um, because of how we practice Adventism in our everyday lives? I, was, um, I w had the honor of being a part of an ordination committee for somebody this, this week. And um, at the end of the ordination committee, um, uh, the, one of the members asked a very difficult question. <laughs> and the question was, if you could change one thing in Adventism, what would it be? And I loved the answer that was given. It was such a powerful answer. She said, what I would change what I would change is how we treat each other. Mm. Because it's not just about what we believe, and I'm, I'm probably butchering her, but this is, this is what I remember. It's not just about what we believe, but how we practice mm. our, our, our beliefs. And uh, what I've seen in Adventism over the years is sometimes we hurt each other. We do more hurting than healing in the way that we live out our faith. Wow. That is a brilliant answer. Yeah. She must be really smart. <laughs> She's very smart. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know what, Joey? Some people will say, but it, but it's hurt. It's difficult. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. These people have made bad decisions. They've made their bed. Now they have to lie in it. Um, these people are dregs on the economy. Whatever language you want to yeah. dehumanize, you want to use to dehumanize. These people have a different set of beliefs than I do. Um, they're from a different faith tradition. Whatever ways you're using to separate them. And I think sometimes it's really important to demythologize, demythologize language. Um, so the question is, when I am being asked to go and to see the image of God in other people, mm. where is that part where it's uncomfortable? Mm. So for me, it might be, you know, the, the supporter of a different political party. Mm. Uh, so it might be a staunch, staunch, very conservative pro-Trump Republican or a very liberal uh, Democrat, whatever it is for you. Um, it might be a drug addict or a prostitute. It might be, for us Adventists, a Catholic or even worse, a Jesuit Catholic. Just think about what Deuteronomy is doing as it is attempting to demythologize language. Mm. It's, it says, who are you supposed to care for? Mm. Care for Hagar. And for them, there was no, that is the real sore spot for Jews. I mean, it's still the sore spot to, this has been 5,000 years later, and it's still the sore spot for them. This, this relationship between Sarah and Hagar, between Jacob and Ishmael, and there it is really early on. Who are you supposed to care for? 
care for Hagar. And so I think that's when you know that you're on to something, when your immediate reaction, as you're saying, go care for the prostitute. And I'm when you said that, subconsciously, I flinched because that makes me uncomfortable. And that tells me something. The fact that you're touching a raw spot tells me something. And so I think the question of Adventism, an Adventism that is staunchly dedicated to forge a link between our beliefs and our practices needs to begin by asking, where are my raw spots? Mm. And wherever those raw spots are, that's who God is telling me to love. So for some of us, it's the immigrant. For some of us, that's not challenging. Mm. It might be the pro-Trump Republican that loves guns and other stuff. And if that's a raw spot for you and you say, immigration's great, let's open our borders, but these people are wrong, then you probably need to focus on, on that group that is a raw spot. So the question isn't as much, try to figure out who's marginalized, important as that is, and we should do that, by the way. But the question at its heart is, mm-hmm. what language has this heavy mythology behind it, this very negative mythology that is causing us to flinch and feel a raw spot? That's where God is calling you to be, to, be, to embrace, to love, and to connect with. Wow. And I love what you're saying about demythologizing because that's really what we do, right? When when we see somebody that we're uncomfortable with, we put them in a box and say, well, all of these people are the same. Mm -hmm. Everybody who supports Trump, they're all this, right? And we make a list, right? But when somebody does that to us, we're like, no, no, no. That's not me. Yeah, that's not me. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I believe in all of Mm -hmm. these things. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean that I'm, I'm all of these things. I don't love gay people or uh, care about um, the immigrants or the poor. I'm this, but I'm also this. Mm -hmm. We see that nuance in ourselves, but we refuse to see that nuance in those people that we put into a box, those people that we have the most difficult time loving. So I love that idea of demythologizing. And let's, let's be real here. What we're talking about is not easy. This is hard stuff that we're talking about, right? This is difficult because, because it, it does involve somewhat of a loss, right? Um, we've talked about Heifetz and Linsky, um, professors at Harvard before, and they say that change is hard. People resist change, not because um, people don't resist change, they resist loss, mm-hmm. right? So this idea that, that change involves loss for us because the system as it's set up is, does give benefits to people. There are some things about the system, the way that it's set up. There are things about our lives and how the status quo is that are helpful to us. So if we talk about, for example, immigrants coming into our country, it does involve a loss. Let's let's be honest that it's going to put more um, more um, pain on the overall system. There is going to be a cost financial and otherwise. It's going to be people speaking different languages. Um, it's going to be different cultures. I remember um, before I came to Loma Linda, I was a part of a church that merged. Three different churches mm. came together, a Filipino church, a multicultural church, and then um, uh, a Korean church all became one. And in concept, in theory, it's like, wow, this is so beautiful. This is what heaven's going to be like. In reality, <laughs> it was hard. 
I mean, worship style, the way that we worship, the way that we do potluck, right? Which you wouldn't think is a big deal, but it was a huge deal, right? The way that we relate to each other, how we communicate, all was different. And it wasn't a loss. And some people left because they said, this is no longer the church that I fell in love with. This no longer feels like my church. What they were saying was, these outsiders came in and they changed my community. And what I find a lot of times is we're okay with outsiders coming in as long as they don't change anything. Mm -hmm. As long as they leave everything exactly the way that it was. But the reality is if we're going to accept and love outsiders, it means that we have to also allow them to change society and change us. And that's challenging. That involves a loss. It makes life harder for those people that I see as insiders, for my family, for my kids, right? So how do we do that? How do we get comfortable with that loss and say, even though it involves a loss to my kids, to my own family, I'm still going to invite these people. Mm. How do we do that? I can tell you how, but that doesn't make it easier. (laughs) I think you've, you've articulated perfectly the challenge. Even as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking of people that, where there's a raw spot that I don't want in my society, in my community. I just don't. Mm. Um, so I think we, we do certain things. First off, I think the most important thing that we need to understand is we need to understand what God's call upon our life is. Mm. That's what that's where that's where Deuteronomy 10, the section that we read began. It said, love your God with everything you've got. Yeah. That's that's it. And then once you've decided that you my call, right? My mission is to love God with everything I've got. Now we can now we've got to create some values. Because there's gonna be competing good things that we that we are going to sometimes uh, have to decide between. Um, the fact that uh, because of certain tax cuts, for example, that people say, well, those could be, those could help uh, lower the, the cost of health care, or they could help uh, widen and broaden the safety net. Well, yeah, great. But those tax cuts also in very real ways have some really tangible benefits for me and my family. Mm-hmm. And so now I have to, comp- I have to decide between two competing good things provide better for my family or broaden a safety net and mm. that's i think where the difficulty comes from yeah. so i think first we understand what god's call upon our life is love me with everything you've got mm. in the case of of the, of the israelites and then you've got to set up uh, your list of core values mm. these are the things that we are going to use in our life mm. and hopefully in our church yes to measure, to to make these decisions when when they're difficult to make. And then I think, once you've done those two things, for me and, and, and Linda and I have been talking about this for about a couple months, we've decided that diversity is a value we want to embrace. Mm. And so when we have to decide between pursuing two good two things that are good, we say, well, what guides us to be a more diverse, more embracing family? Mm. And so we're going to choose if we have to maybe uh, 
let go of our Disneyland passes in order to broaden the safety net, then that's that's what we'll do because it allows us to pursue this core value. And for each and every one of us, I think those uh, need to be individually decided with your your own community. Wow. And then once you've once you've figured out what God's calling for your life is, you've come up with your core values. Now the question becomes, mm. how am I applying these in the realm of flesh and blood? Mm. And how am I constantly calling each other back? Um, you can't be Pollyannish, you know mm. this, Joey. Any change, any change uh, is going to require a period of pain. Mm. And it is when the, cha the, the change is driven by uh, belief in mission and by this, idea, this commitment to core values that the pain is bearable. Mm. Um, so the difference, I think, is, be is not between loss and non-loss. The, the difference is between loss that is bearable and loss that is unbearable. If you're talking about, mm -hmm. hey, we all, we're all afraid of loss. Well, the question becomes, which losses are bearable? And when we define that uh, through our core values, through the mission and the vision that God has cast upon your life, then uh, you push through the pain knowing that at the other side there's, there's something better. Wow, that's so beautiful. Thinking intentionally about what it is that we value and then living that out, practicing that in our everyday lives. Because a lot of times... You know, honestly, we, I make decisions based on instinct, mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, this sounds good at this moment. I'm not really thinking through what are the things that I want to look because a lot of times, like you said, the choice is not between a good and a bad. It's a choice between a good and a good. And so how do I choose which good to, to promote? And what you seem to be saying is be intentional. Think through those values. It seems like one of those values should also be our love for others as mm -hmm. well, right? Like, like you said, being able to see the image of God in, in other people and saying that they are, they are a part of us. I, I love how um, uh, Moses um, kind of reframes. Like he starts out by, in, in Deuteronomy 9 and half of 10, he just shows how much they were outsiders right. and how, what failures they were. Like right. you, you were people that when I was on the mountain getting the law <laughs> of God, you were down yeah. below worshiping an idol, yeah. you know, and, and, and God was almost so fed up with you. He was going to destroy you, right? That, that's who you are. Those are the, you were slaves, you were foreigners, you were outsiders and God brought you in. And, and now he's asking you to do the same, to love those that you deem as being outsiders, because there really isn't an outsider and an insider. There's only outsiders mm -hmm. that God has brought all of us in. God has made us insiders. Yeah. And so so he seems to be saying, this is the type, you need to see yourself not as someone who's chosen because you are righteous. He actually says that. You're right? not chosen because of your righteousness, right? You're chosen because God chose you mm. and God chooses others as well. And so we need to love others like God loves others. And that's hard, like you said. And yet that, that is the calling that we are all called to do. Like, like God called the Israelites, he calls us mm. to see ourselves not as insiders who are more special than others, mm. but outsiders who have been called in and to bring others in. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's hard because there's something you think that as, as um, slaves and as foreigners that 
they would have more compassion for slaves and foreigners. And yet it's a weird thing about human nature that um, bullies become bullies, mm -hmm. right? That people who have, you would think people who have experienced bullying would be less likely to, right. to bully others. And yet we see bullies become bullies. Um, people who have been pushed out in the margins push other people out mm -hmm. in the margins. And God is saying, break that cycle. Now that you have the power, now that you are in the inside, don't use it to do what others have done to you. Use it to, to bring other people in. Yeah, well, Joey, I think that's a beautiful way to close us. And uh, like you always do, um, would you invite our minds and our hearts to connect with the God who inhabits the margins? Good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being a God who embraces even though we sinned, we rejected you, we pushed you away, over and over again, you have shown that you are a God who reaches out, adapts to us, and, and, and brings us in. And we ask that you help us to do the same, to enter into the incredibly difficult mission, your mission, of embracing those that we deem as being outsiders, because we are outsiders too. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So whatever you believe, whoever you are, whatever ethnicity or background you have, whatever religion you practice or put a political party you're affiliated, know this, you are a son and a daughter of God. And because that, you are a sister and a brother to us. May God richly bless you until we meet again. Mm -hmm.